As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stasekel, joined as always by my good buddy and co-host, Paul Tenorio. Paul, we've got uh, something to talk about today. Yeah, you workshopped that joke before this and... uh, Yeah, really good. I don't know if it landed or not. I don't know. I mean, I think when you add it all up, it's going to be a good show, regardless of whether or not that some joke worked. But, you know, you win some, you lose some. <laughs> You're an idiot. Uh, yeah, I am. Confirmed. Uh, however, as I was just hinting at, uh, there was some significant news in American soccer over the weekend. It was announced by U.S. Soccer and Soccer United Marketing, which, for those of you who do not know, is the, uh, what would you call it, the commercial, a commercial arm of Major League Soccer? Yeah, the commercial um, arm. A commercial arm. Anyway, um... They package a lot of things. They basically serve as like an agency of sorts for MLS and its owners. Um, they help the Mexican Federation set up the U.S. tour and all the friendlies that are played here. Uh, they help run Leagues Cup. They sell a lot of the sponsorship. They sell media rights. And for years and years and years, they sold the media rights and handled all of the sponsorship for U.S. soccer and the friendlies that they would play here in the U.S., World Cup qualifiers that they would play here in the U.S. for both the men and the women. And those rights on the media side would be baked in to MLS's TV deal. And it was announced over the weekend by both entities that that deal will no longer proceed. U.S. soccer is bringing its operations in-house. So some no longer has that property. Um, and, you know, some is a major vehicle for revenue for MLS and its owners. So this has a pretty significant impact uh, that's going to be felt kind of across the landscape. And Paul, you wrote a a very nice story, very informative story 
on the subject, spoke with MLS Commissioner Don Garber, who is the head of some as well, um, for for the article. Um, so tell us, why did this happen? Well, I think this happened mainly because U.S. soccer was ready to to bring operations in house. With if you look at their hires in the the C suite of U.S. soccer, both the CEO and the COO of U.S. soccer have experience in this side of the business. They both come from a marketing, sales, commercial background. Both of them worked for Soccer United Marketing, and. So they have the experience. David Wright worked for 15 years for some and, and played a role in the deal for U.S. soccer. And clearly, U.S. soccer believes that by bringing the the commercial department in-house, yes, you take on the expense of hiring out that department, but they believe that they will make more money by doing that than they will by farming it out to some. And I think also we have to recognize that there are pros and cons to this move, right? The pros are, like I just said, you know, obviously you think that you can do more and make more money. Con being you have to, you have all the outlay costs of hiring out this department. But a big yeah, part of it too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, you've got all that work to do. They looked at that from the people I spoke to within U.S. soccer, it looked at it as a positive that they were going to be having these conversations with their partners. In today's world, the partners want more. It's not just you're a title sponsor and that's it. You know, there, there's ways to integrate those sponsors into um, into kind of the things that U.S. soccer is doing or whatever company it may be um, into the content that's produced. And I think also we have to recognize when you are representing yourself you are the top priority, right? When you're making those sales, when you're dealing with the partners, you know, Soccer United Marketing, yes, they represent or they they have U.S. soccer as a client, but they also have the FMF as a client. They have CONCACAF as a client. They have MLS as a client. And they're representing all of those clients to these, to these potential A lot of partners. different accounts. Yeah. A lot of different accounts. And so, you know, it's a Jerry Maguire type effect, right? You have one... You're looking out for number one here. You got one person looking out for number one or, or you know, one entity <laughs> looking out for number one in this case. And I think that played a big role as well. So what do you think this means? Because, you know, over the years, you and I have been in this game long enough to hear all of the various conspiracy theories between, oh, MLS is some, which, you know, it is, um, and some and U.S. soccer are too closely connected and there's a conflict of interest there. But there's also the other element of the deal that, I sort of hit at it the, in the intro, which is like, hey, this was, you know, in most years, a, a profit center for MLS too that is no longer. So what it, what do you think this means for MLS now that we fit on the U.S. soccer side of it? Well, it, it's it's hard to say because some is a private company, right? But I think from my conversations with different sources, they, they certainly were playing down just how big of a profit center U.S. soccer was as a, um, you know, as a portion or a fraction of what Soccer United Marketing does. Not that it didn't generate profit. Certainly, they wouldn't be taking this on if it didn't generate profit. But that the money itself wasn't the real motivator behind taking on U.S. soccer. So let's go back to when this all started. Some was created in order to better sell soccer in this country. And they started some by taking on U.S. soccer. At the time, IMG was selling the commercial rights of U.S. soccer. They were losing money. 
and they were looking to get out of the contract early. And MLS created Soccer United Marketing, and they purchased those that contract from IMG. So I think we should first recognize that IMG you know wasn't making money on U.S. soccer at the time, and and the MLS goal at that point was we are if we can sell and increase the the value of U.S. soccer as an entity, it's going to be a really good thing for MLS too, right? Because we're increasing the value of soccer in the United States in general, and sure. That that is what people I spoke to kind of claimed was was really the motivating factor this entire time. U.S. Soccer through this contract was receiving from some thirty million dollars a year, guaranteed thirty million dollars a year, no matter how they performed. So in some years, and then anything above thirty million dollars, there was a revenue share agreement, and that was a tiered revenue share agreement. So you know, in a year like twenty eighteen, when you missed the World Cup. MLS and some took a huge hit, right? They lost money. They never hit that thirty million guarantee um, that they still had to pay out, right? Um, right. In a year when they would have been anticipating going way, way above it, it, way above it. Yeah. And but then you go back and you look at twenty fourteen, or even the Copa America Centenario and the amount of money that was made. You know that you know that there's significant money to be made there. I'm pretty sure some worked on the Copa America Centenario deal as well. I'd be surprised if they didn't. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, you know, there was, there was give and take from the people I spoke to, you know, the, the impression I got was this isn't a massive financial hit for soccer United marketing. They, this is a multi-billion dollar business. It's been valued as such. We know that because MLS bought back a portion of some from an investment firm at, at that valuation. They still represent major league soccer, right? Obviously they still represent the FMF. They still represent CONCACAF. And so, is it is it important? Is it significant? Sure, it hurts the value anytime you lose a property like this. But I, I don't think that, you know, looking at some of the questions we got for the Twitter Q&A portion of this show, you know, there were a mm-hmm. few questions about um, whether it would impact franchise valuations, whether it would um, destroy the league. It, it's not that significant of a financial hit. You know, it, it is a financial hit, but it's not that significant of one that it would destroy valuations of a club. Some still exists and some will still make money. Yeah, um, especially with the Mexico partnership, which is basically only growing and only becoming more important. And and Major so. League Soccer, too. I mean, the commercial arm of Major League Soccer, you know, this is a demographic. The people who watch soccer in this country is a very desirable demographic. And And, you know, when you look at like, for example, I, I think it was. A season ago or two seasons ago, MLS had sold out all of its inventory on ad sales for for, TV, for national TV. Now you want those ad rates to go up, right? With yeah. with ratings, mm-hmm. but the fact that it's selling out its ad inventory is a sign of just how badly advertisers advertisers want to reach the audience that tunes in. I mean, MLS do you know if that's games. typical? Do you know if that's typical for other leagues? I would assume it is. You'd, I would expect it is, but the, I, I believe in the conversation I had, I have to go back to my notes on this, but like, I believe the, that this, this sellout had happened prior to the start of the season for the entire year's inventory, which I think is a little bit, it, it, what, what hmm. they were trying to say is the ratings aren't the only indication of the success of Major League Soccer, right? And that's what I'm trying to say here. The ratings, yeah. the TV ratings aren't the only indication of the commercial success of Major League Soccer and some, and that's why there's still significant valuation behind some that, that that they have uh mls they have fmf in the united states they have Concacaf leagues cup they all of Campionis those things cup. all of yeah. those things factor into to the properties of some and all of those things 
are more profitable than, you know, the revenue driven day to day by major league soccer teams. So so you brought up ratings. Let's just get right into it. What do you think this does for the TV deal? I mean, you kind of mentioned like, hey, like this isn't going to sink. It's not going to be a death knell or anything like that. Um, you know, we were talking about this the other day, you and I, and you made a good point that like as part of this deal, the main matches that MLS can sell for the men's national team are World Cup qualifiers. You know what's not going to exist? Home World Cup qualifiers specifically. Those aren't going to exist before 2026. Or I don't think that's official yet. I don't think FIFA has said that all three countries are going to automatically qualify, but that's the expectation. And, and so those games might not even exist. You don't have that inventory there. The interesting side to me, Paul, and this is not something that we spend a lot of time talking about on this show, is the women's side. Because that's the most popular team. In, in in terms of the men's versus women's national teams, you know that's the more successful one certainly, and, and they have more friendly matches on the schedule, like she believes cup and more things that fall under that some or would have fallen under that some purview um, than the men, and and to me that's the biggest kind of revenue stream when you're talking about media rights and the national teams specifically that the league is now losing out on. But but what do you think this does for the TV deal? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, obviously, it's going to make the package weaker. And especially because Major League Soccer was trying to put together as big a package as possible with, you know, all of the local deals in market, out of market, the streaming deal, the international deal, all of the national deal, all of it was put together in one package, right? Where that's how they're shaping it now for this this bidding process. And still, so, still is. Yeah. Yeah, it still is. And so you wanted to put, yeah, would they have packaged U.S. soccer with it to make it even stronger? Of course. Um, to your point, on the men's national team side, not only are you losing, likely losing home qualifiers from the TV package this time around, but the number of friendlies that U.S. soccer plays have dropped off significantly because of Nations League. And Nations League is owned by CONCACAF and not by U.S. soccer. So those games are out the window as well. And you're right. The women's national team, there, there are more properties owned by U.S. soccer. There are friendlies that do better TV ratings and always have than U.S. soccer. The U.S. men's national team friendlies you know, how many people are tuning in for USA Costa Rica on February 1st coming out of January national team camp? You know, not that many people. So, um, you know, that all of those things have to be considered. But do I think it weakens the, the television deal for Major League Soccer? Yeah, of course, you're losing an important entity. Do I think it, com you know, completely alters what the TV deal will look like? No, I don't. Because I, I again, I think the strength of this upcoming deal is especially going to be the the streaming content that MLS will provide. When you look at what's happening right now with CBS and Paramount Plus, when you look at NBC and Peacock, when you look at ESPN, ESPN. and ESPN Plus, there are there's a lot of competition right now because soccer fans, the demographic of soccer fans are younger. They're more likely to consume via streaming and they're more likely to purchase um, subscription services to watch soccer. And so they are... They are an entry point to buy your subscription program. And I think that's why we'll see the TV deal look much better for Major League Soccer this time around. I don't know how much better, um, but, you know, as Don Garber told me, he feels like they are entering the market at exactly the right time. And, and I don't think that this is going to be like some event that has drastically changed or shaped the scope of the TV deal by losing the national team. I don't think that's the balance anymore between MLS and the national team as it might have been back in 2006 ahead of the World Cup or even, you know, 2010 when the league was in a completely different place. Yeah, for sure. And I, I want to just provide a little bit of context here. So those those 
streaming networks that you mentioned. Um, just some numbers. CBS recently paid reportedly $75 million per year for three years of Syria outrights. Um, ESPN reportedly paying $175 million per year over the next eight years for the La Liga rights in the U.S. MLS, in contrast, gets $90 million a year in its current deal, which includes those national team games, right, from Fox, ESPN, and Univision. Which they pay out $30 million to U.S. soccer guaranteed, so we know what's left over just off the bat there, right? Now, there are other things that come with that $30 million in terms of sponsorship. It's not just purely media, but... Um, yeah, just for a little bit of context there. And then you sort of got at this, but one of Garber's quotes to you, you know, he feels like it's the perfect time for the market. And part of the reason he feels like that is the fact that the fan base, the MLS fan base, the quote, young, almost cable, never soccer fan is very, very inclined to view soccer programming through streaming services end quote. And I think that's a real feather in MLS's cap heading into this next deal. Um, I I still don't really know what to think about it. I have people that are super bullish on it. I have people that are pessimistic on it that I've spoken to. Um, we'll see where it ends up. Is it going to be 3x the current deal? I don't know. That sounds kind of high to me. Is it going to be two? I would expect probably at least two. Well, we've talked but about this, Sam. We'll the see. dynamics have changed drastically since the last TV deal, right? It went from 20 teams in MLS to what will be 29 and Probably yeah, thirty. There are a lot more, a lot more people wanting slices of pie now than right. there were before. So, so the for the deal to be a significant game changer for MLS teams, it, it's going to have to be a massive, massive jump. And I think we also have to factor that into this TV deal. You know, when when you're signing the last TV deal, it does matter that there are fewer teams in fewer markets around the country, right? Now you have a league that's that's active in more um, markets in the United States that's active in more active in bigger markets in the United States. And I think it's worth pointing out, Sam, you've been tracking this um, for us so far this year. The TV numbers suddenly have looked better this year, which is kind of surprising to me. They've been yeah, a little they've been more prominent, like I think partly because they've been on, on the big channels early in the season, big yeah. Fox, big ABC. That's probably helped. But they, we are seeing an uptick that I think is, you know, we've been hovering around like what, like mid 300s. Um, for the last few years, mid 200s to mid 300s. And we've seen a couple numbers that are, you know, in the fives, in the yeah, sixes, in the no, sevens. It's, it's been better, I think, for sure. Um, I'm curious to see how sustainable it is over the course of the year. Um, but they've been up, I think, even year over year compared to, to previous seasons. Um, so I think that's positive for MLS. Like I wrote about this a lot in that story I did on valuations, right? It's not so much about where you are right now, but where you're trending. Right. And if the league can say, hey, we're on the rise, right? Buy low and you'll get in at good value, you know, and take this massive ride with us, rocket ship to the moon. If you got those diamond strong hands, man. <laughs> you know? MLS is Dogecoin, Paul. I think that's what I'm trying to say. Well, you are a major Doge investor and you are essentially investing your yeah. life in Major League Soccer. So you are really going to have to have diamond strong hands, Sam, or else it's going to be. <laughs> Sad, sad ending to this story. <laughs> <laughs> you can just call me the big doge from now on. Um, I think that's a good place to take a break on this topic. And we're going to come back. We're going to do the Q&A like Paul mentioned. But I want to hit on something at least quickly that Paul and I have had discussions about, about casual and avid fans and how does MLS convince people to make that jump. We'll be right back after the break. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. 
Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And we are back. This is Paul Tenorio bringing us back from a break. Sam needed a, you know, he needed a rest. He needed to Let's kind go. of think about Doge and MLS. Paul's carrying um, the piano now. Finally. You know, I'm, he- finally. I'm here to tickle the ivories, baby. <laughs> So, Sam, we had a conversation. I, I was speaking with uh, with someone in Major League Soccer just about the kind of um, interesting breakdown of fans and the, the challenge that MLS faces in needing to appeal to both a casual sports fan and casual soccer fan and try to get them to start tuning into Major League Soccer to grow its fan base. And then also having a really important task of catering to the diehard fans that that are the most loyal fans of MLS, the ones that we see in all of the advertising campaigns, the ones that we believe um, kind of drive the atmosphere and the product for Major League Soccer. And, you know, for us, for me personally, it's been an interesting journey as a Major League Soccer reporter because I feel like I have lived that experience, right? I have, when I was working at the Orlando Sentinel, I had a job that was not just reporting on Orlando City day to day, but because I was working for the local newspaper, my task was to write for an audience that was both the diehard fans in Orlando and also the Orlando Sentinel subscribers who do not care about soccer, the people that would send me mean emails and and write hand, the older people especially who would send me handwritten letters to the Orlando wow. Sentinel newsroom telling me to stop writing about soccer. And so I and had to start writing again about Blake Bortles. Exactly. More Bortles, less MLS. And Bortles. so I, I had to <laughs> I had to write for both, right? I had to write stories in a way that would educate people about MLS and about soccer and and make them interested in maybe showing up to a game or make them interested in reading my next story about Orlando City. But then I also was writing a lot of stories that I still write now that are very allocation disordery that were that were very much, you know, pointed toward the diehard Orlando City fans who wanted to talk about building the roster and who fit and who didn't and why they signed Breck Shea and how much money he was, you know, how much money they were spending and all those types of things. When I left the Sentinel and went to 442 and now the Athletic, my audience narrowed, right? I, I and This is the audience we kind of write for, Sam, and that you wrote for when you were writing for MLSsoccer.com. Those are the diehards that are reading us. And if you're listening to this podcast, there are very high odds that you are a diehard MLS fan. Yeah. You're um, probably a psycho. Yeah, you're, you, no you're definitely I say that at with least love. a little bit crazy. A little bit crazy for sure, at least. And we are, we are the craziest of these people. Yeah, just because full we, disclosure. We, we do this podcast, which is just even, you know, even more of an indictment. But, you know, what, I, what I've started to think more about as as – we discuss story ideas and and when we talk about kind of what we're doing with this show 
is that part of our yes we are definitely appealing to the diehards but we also want to convert you know good mls fans into diehard fans right we want we want people to get interested in the things we're interested about because that's what we write about the things that interest us for the most part there are some stories that get assigned to us that we're less excited about but you know you want people to kind of (laughs) you know get interested in the things you're writing about and so we want to be we want to be the gateway drug yeah exactly we're we we we're exactly that right we're the first little you know bump or whatever and and then we're off to the races you know and and i think i think that's an important part of kind of any sports journalism is that, you know, we're all catering to some different level of fan. But I think when you look at NFL coverage and NBA coverage, Major League Baseball coverage, you know, when you get to a certain level of the coverage, it it starts to turn and say, okay, like, we are your introduction to being to really getting into the nitty gritty, to really diving into the details. And we're going to turn you from being somebody who flips on an NFL game every once in a while on a Sunday to sitting on your couch watching red zone or going to a sports bar all day long and watching every NFL game or, you know, doing what I also do, which is take part in a way too complicated fantasy football league that has a luxury tax in its draft. And, and I think that, (laughs) you know, I think that's an important role too, Sam. I've talked a lot about this, Sam. I'm going to take a second to say, how do you see it? What do you think about the kind of the, the back and forth of, of, of selling, MLS of what MLS has to do less us but what MLS has to do in selling to two very different types of fans well yeah I think this is a really interesting topic because I think you can frame it as this like conflict right on the one side you have the diehard fans who are here and they're not really going anywhere unless you do something totally crazy like change your name to Columbus SC and even then most of those people are going to stick around right so In some ways, MLS doesn't really need to try and go get those people. They're already in the door. You don't want to spend your time and your energy and your money on capturing customers that you already have, right? That makes sense. You want to go and expand and grow and capture new people that maybe are halfway in the door or not yet in the door, right? And MLS needs to do that and should be trying to do that. But I think it's wrong to frame it it as a conflict, right? And I I, th- I don't think those two things can are mutually exclusive in terms of giving hardcore fans what they want and trying to grow the league in that direction, whether that's in terms of, you know, involving them in a rebrand or cr- trying to facilitate a stadium that can be a really awesome atmosphere, right? Driven by the people who are here and who have been here and have been committed for years, Right. And so you can do those things while also trying to go out and get new people in the door. And I think if you do, if you do the first part, right, if you take care of the hardcore, I think that drives a lot of that atmosphere. And that is the most compelling thing you can do as a league, right? Apart from raising the level of play dramatically. And that's a more local thing anyway, right? Team to team. That's the most compelling thing you can do as a, as a broader league to get more people interested and get more people involved. Right. And so I think those two things go hand in hand. And I think kind of this idea that there is, they should be, it's, it's, it's zero sum or it's one against the other. And if we're doing one, then that, that means we're doing less of the other. I think that's kind of a fallacy. Um, and I don't know. I think that's, I think that's kind of interesting. When I, when I think about like my journey as a MLS person, whatever you want to call it, right? Like, I've sort of discovered, I I always think back to an article I wrote at MLS 
And it was just like on a whim. It was like completely on a whim. It was like late afternoon, some weird trade. Gam, it was a gam for tam trade between DC United and Toronto FC. And it was one of the first of those that had ever happened. And I was like, this is funny. I know kind of what this means. Let me get on the phone, get some quotes, get some people to give me some stuff on background so I can explain it. And I wrote over the course of probably two hours or something from start to finish, wrote and published a piece kind of explaining the straight and people loved it, like loved it. And not just people that were like hardcore, but people that were maybe a little more halfway in. Right. And I, the response I got to that article, both on like Twitter and on my phone and like people in MLS clubs, fans were reaching out to me to be like, Hey, I loved this. This really made sense. And that sort of like showed me, Hey, there's an appetite for this stuff. Right. And that's what you and I try and do all the time is feed that appetite. Right. And I'm not saying like the league is in the business needs to be in the business of doing that necessarily. I think in some ways they are, in some ways they aren't. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if this answers the question. I just, I just do think that it shouldn't be a battle. Those two ideas shouldn't be competing with each other. They should be working in concert. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple things that I want to kind of piggyback on there. And that idea of, of these things going together or feeding the diehard fans kind of playing into, um, you know, the way that we – the way that you can sell, um, sell this league to a, a wider audience, right? And, you know, on – and for me, I look at it like Columbus Crew as a great example. Like Columbus needs to expand its season ticket holding base. It needs to grow. But you don't have to go and become Columbus SC to do that, to appeal to a wider audience. What you need to do is get people to show up at your game and and have them see the atmosphere and, and realize that it's different than what they can get going to an NHL game or an Ohio State game. Not that it's better, that it's different. It's a different type of environment for um you know for sports fans and the example i have of that that really just stands out in my mind is i thought orlando city and phil rollins brett lashbrook was involved at the time did a brilliant job when orlando city came into the league in that the entire campaign was built around filling the citrus bowl they didn't expect that sixty-two thousand people would come back for the second game what they wanted was for you know fifty thousand people or maybe even more, depending on how you look at it, being introduced to the ILF and the ruckus, the two supporters groups, and what a soccer atmosphere could look like, and to feel the energy of 60,000 people in the stands for a soccer game, and everyone rising up and screaming when Kaká's free kick went in to tie it at the end of the game, and that you could get that excitement, that you could get that thrill, that you could hear the drums, and you could hear everything that was soccer, right, that was different than a Florida State football game or a UCF football game or a Magic game or whatever. And it worked. People came back that wouldn't have come back. When the Galaxy came into town and the second time they opened the upper bowl with no real preparation a week ahead of time, they put 40,000 plus people in the stands. You know, that was, that was due to the, you know, that was due more to the, to the experience of the opening game than it was to what product was on the field. Getting 40,000 people to show up wasn't about to see the galaxy. It wasn't about stars on the field. It was about people wanting to feel that experience again. And so, you know, I think that that shows that if you, if you, 
if you push towards the the diehard fans, the atmosphere, it sells casual fans. The second thing I want to say, and this doesn't help me or you at all, so I always hesitate to say it in a very public sphere, but I, I have said it to other people privately. It's not like I'm trying to like always and only help myself. But like I always feel as an example of this that like breaking news, which is something that you and I do as part of our job, like if I were a team PR person, I would never – I mean, not that any PR people are like leaking us stuff anyways, but like if you're running comms or you're part of a club, like in my opinion, you should be breaking quote unquote, every single story, every single signing should be handed to the local newspaper because you're reaching an another audience. You're still satisfying your diehard fans, giving them the information that they're going to want. But if you just put it out on your Twitter page, you're reaching the people who already follow you and that's it. You know, even if you go to us, you're reaching a wider MLS audience, but the chances are you're reaching MLS fans. And and what we do is explain why a signing is happening. And we we really want the nitty gritty of like what went into this deal and and maybe that's a different type of audience. But for the for the news itself, you want that on the front page of the sports page of the Orlando Sentinel or of the Washington Post or of the Kansas City Star. And, and th those, by the way, you see it in a lot of those markets, Kansas City and DC mm -hmm. and Orlando. And and that's because you're trying to to expand your reach. And, and again, that's another example of I'm satisfying my soccer audience who also subscribe to this local paper, but I'm now also reaching more fans and different fans and, and giving them an, an opportunity to read that story or see it on the front page and, and understand yeah. that we're a major league team. Yeah, no, I think that's such a key thing. And not every market even has that available to it, right? NYCFC and the New York Red Bulls can go to the New York Times all they want about, you know, whatever signing they're making, you know, and it's not going to, you know, it's not going to be in the paper most likely. <laughs> yeah, it's Unless it's I mean, Davide yeah. Villa or Frank You shouldn't go to the Times for that anyway, but yeah. Um, yeah, you know. I don't know how often um, you want to be on the back page of the post, you know, necessarily. <laughs> Imagine some of those headlines, man. Like the Rafa Marquez game when he got ejected for, like, throwing a ball at Landon Donovan's head. Oh, my goodness. The Roy Miller free kick on the back of the New York Post. It would have been incredible. Yeah, we'll, we'll we should have write to, we'll some have revisionist some, headlines. We, we need some allocation disorder fans to tweet us some good headlines of MLS moments <laughs> on the, in the back of the New York Post. Red Bull and NYCFC moments. <laughs> just any moments. Any moments at all. You, you can expand it. Get creative. We know you're creative out there. Let's see how creative you are. Um, but anyway, I, th I do think it's interesting. And I just hope the league is, is fundamentally thinking of it in those ways and not seeing it as a conflict. Like that, I think that's my main takeaway here. I'm not totally sure of that one way or another. I think certainly some people at the league would view it that way, but, um, you know, it's a tough balance to strike. It's a difficult walk to walk or a line to walk rather. Uh, but I do think it's one that's pretty important and will be important for the league as it continues because what it wants, right, is what we see at the athletic in the UK or what we see with the athletic NFL. Right, where it's like multiple writers per team and every single little move or action or decision is dissected ten different ways. Right? And people eat it up. And and I think there's an element of that in MLS. Obviously it's more niche and it's smaller. Um, but you know, I think if the league can continue building that, then, you know, maybe it can continue growing and get there a little bit faster where it wants to go. Anything else to add on the subject before we get to these Q and A's? Um, Q and A. Anyone who ever helps us break news as a source heard that last part. Ignore it. Thank you. 
<laughs> there you go. And with that, we'll take a break. We'll be back with uh, with with a Q and A section to to close out the show. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. And we are back. Final segment of today's show. We're doing it a little bit differently on this show. We're doing a little Q&A. We're recording a day earlier than we usually do. We're recording on a Wednesday. Our schedules are kind of out of whack this week. It's still coming out on Friday. So you're listening to this on Friday. Hopefully no news happens between now and when we record. Otherwise, you might not be listening to this. And there might be a new show entirely. But let's hope that doesn't happen. Let's dive right into the Q&A, though. Uh, we asked for questions. A bunch of you asked them. Uh, so first is from Jeff Prescott. Any word on the penalty for Miami having 40 P's on the roster in 2020? The announcement that MLS had determined Miami violated the rules came out 40 days ago. It's many days. Well, Don Garber uh, actually addressed this to reporters in Cincinnati when the stadium opened. And what he said was basically interviews are still being done and an announcement on a penalty still isn't yet at that we're not at that phase yet he didn't put a timeline on it this time which is much smarter because he put a timeline on it last time and that timeline <laughs> Maybe got been, a little ahead of himself huh <laughs> yeah he got a little ahead of himself um i do think that this is in the works I, i've heard so many different kind of rumors and thoughts about what it might be obviously not enough to report it you know we we want everything to be vetted and not speculative before we ever put reporting down um but you know I, there will be a punishment um they are going through the process still. There are interviews happening. This isn't just like from what I've been told to, it's not just like it's like a like lazy kind of internal process where you're just like talking to somebody on the phone about something like th- this kind of thing has to, if you're going to punish somebody or punish a team, like there there's things you have to like, you have to cross your T's and dot your I's in many different ways. Um, so I, I think all of that stuff is being done as well. I, I wouldn't, I would expect a punishment to be announced before the summer window opens. Um, so before, you know, what would that July be 7th. like July? Yeah. July 7th. Um, but you know, I don't know, man, T- TBD, we, we keep hearing different things. Sam. Have you heard anything different? No, not really. I mean, the one thing that I would just kind of add to what you said is that like everyone that I've spoken to about this expects a pretty significant punishment. Um, I think summer window would make sense in terms of doing it before the summer window would make sense because I don't think that punishment is going to affect anything for Miami this season. I think it would probably be for 2022 and potentially beyond. Um, so doing it before the summer window would allow them to kind of plan out a little bit further in terms of what signings they will or will not make this this summer. Um, so I think that could be important. But, you know, the league doesn't necessarily have to give Miami any benefit like that. You know, <laughs> it's not like they've earned it because they, they broke the rules. So we'll see. But, yeah, that's basically basically same thing I would have said. So. All right, let's go to the next question. This one's from Red and Orange Kenny. Um, Houston and RSL are currently in a playoff position and a point away from one, respectively. Given the sale processes of both teams and how it could impact the summer transfer window, 
Would it be a shock for one or both teams to make the playoffs? Hmm. Um, yes and no. I mean, it's MLS. Like, anyone can make the playoffs. Seven teams make it in each conference. You know, a lot of teams make it. Would it be the most shocking thing to see either of them make it? No, not at all. I would be more surprised if Houston made it because I don't think they're as good as Salt Lake in terms of their roster. Salt Lake also still has Bobby Wood on the way, although... The way Rubio Rubin is going, maybe maybe they don't need him um, quite as much as they thought. Um, in terms of the ownership situation, I mean, I don't think RSL... I think RSL, they've been connected to a TAM signing um, out of Argentina. I'm blanking on the guy's name. It's Jonathan something. Um, so they've been connected to that. I think they probably have the budget and the space to, to make a TAM ad. Um, Houston, I think, if anything, the ownership news helps them. Because I think they spent, they, they showed this offseason that ownership wasn't going to spend money on players. Right? They got rid of Ellis, they sold him, they sold Minotas. They didn't really do anything to go out and replace either of those guys, at least with new incoming signings in a, in a significant way. So maybe if that deal can get closed, maybe the floodgate opens a little bit and Houston can go out and make a move. Um, so if anything, I, sh- I think it should help. Um, I don't think that the ownership situation is going to have a significant impact beyond what we already knew. And if one made the playoffs, I wouldn't be that surprised. If two make the playoffs, if both made the playoffs, I would be surprised. But, I mean, it's MLS. I'm wrong about this stuff like 90% of the time. What about you? Sound about right? Yeah, I think so. I'd be surprised if either ownership sale happened fast enough to have an impact on the summer transfer window. Even if Even if the sale for Houston goes through... I don't know how quickly you're going to the new owner being like, hey, we have to sign this guy for, you know, a $7 million DP in Houston or something like that. Like maybe a TAM deal goes through, maybe a free agent deal goes through like in the global market. Um, but I'd be surprised. I don't know. I mean, maybe the Houston owners would want to come in and say and have already said to, to Matt Jordan, you know, look, we're going to we want to come in and make a splash right away and announce ourselves. But for the most part, I think there's a lot of due diligence that goes into what am I taking over? What does everyone's contract look like? What does the roster look like for next year? And try to figure out where things stand before they start committing to three and four year DP and young money contracts. So I'd, I'd be surprised in general if the, the summer window was impacted too much by ownership sales. For sure. Uh, this one comes from Tim Katz. And Paul, this one, I mean, it's definitely got to be asked to you. These are your boys. How confident should we be that things will improve in Harrison with the Red Bulls? Does Struber make it to the end of the season if they don't? Uh, yes, to the answer, to answer that second part of the question. Sorry, I stole, I stole that from you. It's okay. Um, first of all, I agree with you. Absolutely, Struber will be coaching by the end of the season. They paid, multi, you know, what, $2 million for him in a transfer fee? Um, 2.75 2.75 million dollars even more reason why he'll be here at the end of the year i think the third biggest transfer fee in club history (laughs) right um i personally believe that things are going to turn around significantly for the red bulls to the tune of you know going to second in the league by the end of the year that's how significantly the you're not backing off that even with aaron long i'm not backing off there are options if you're the red bulls to replace aaron long Ventura Alvarado's trying to come to MLS. He's an option. You could go make a Andres trade. Andres Reyes ha- had a very eventful game over the weekend. <laughs> I like Andres Reyes as a prospect. You're going to have to go through some ups and downs with him. But I, I liked him in Miami. I-, I-, I still think he can be a good player. You know, you could go try to make a trade for somebody. You know, you think about the kind of athleticism that 
that Red Bull center backs have and kind of what they ask of them to press high. Like maybe, maybe you go to Chicago and you, and you ask for Calvo. You take Calvo off Chicago's hands. And, uh, that's going to get them to second in the league. Didn't you bury Calvo <laughs> on the show last week? I'm just trying to help the fire out after I buried them last week. That's all I was okay. trying to do there. Got it. Yes. I, I think things will get better. I think things will get better. I, I, I really do believe that this is a team that. Just need some time together. They're super young. They added a lot of pieces. I like Clemala as a player. I think he's going to get better as he gets more minutes and gets more fit. Same with Frankie Amaya. I think so. I think things will be better in New York. I agree too. Okay, Sam. Um, let's go uh, here to Adam Porter. Which teams are in need, most need of the upcoming international break, and who do you think it could hurt? Also, should the croupier announce Perry Kitchen as Kevin at all of their matches now? Yeah, Kevin SC, I believe, is what I would go with on that one. Um, Kevin Kitchen does have a nice ring to it. You know, some alliteration there. I don't hate it, man. Zlatan, is a, he's a genius, man. <laughs> yeah, he's God or something. I don't know. Depends who you ask. Which teams are most in need of the upcoming international break? Portland, I think. They, those guys, they can't stop getting hurt. It's been brutal for them. Um, Andy Polo is now out for the year. They just announced that the other day after the shocking tackle that Derek Williams had on him from the Galaxy game over the weekend. Um, and he's just one of a long list of players. So they need some time to rest and recover and recoup. And, you know, like right now they're just walking wounded. Like they don't have a bunch of players that they can field on a game by game basis to try and get results. So they need some time to recover. So I think Portland is clear number one there. In terms of teams that could hurt, hmm. I really thought of it this way. Uh, I mean, anytime you're rolling, you want to keep rolling, right? Who's been rolling the most? Seattle. So, you know, um, that being said, some time off maybe for Nico Ladero to get back to full fitness. We saw him make a cameo appearance and he didn't, uh, he hasn't played since. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with him. Uh, but yeah, maybe, maybe Seattle. What about you? You, you have any other different shouts on that one? Yeah, I think I think DC United could probably use the break. They need to just maybe catch their breath a little bit with the changeover that's happened and the fitness. I don't think the, I don't think Losada will let them catch their breath. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think just getting a little bit of a breather would be helpful to them. I think the teams that have been struggling in the league, I think, could use the break. So Chicago Fire, Cincinnati, I think it's good to, to kind of step back, especially if you're if you're Chicago. I know this will seem counterintuitive to what you just said, but. If you started the way you did and then you, you get two wins in a row at home, I actually think it would be a good time to take a break and just say, okay, we're going into this break with some positive momentum after a negative start. We, we're feeling good about ourselves. We've got things going. Let's let's fine-tune some things and come back out firing. Kind of hammer home hammer yeah. home your new principles. Yeah, exactly. So that, that's that's another team that I think would, will, will benefit or could benefit depending on what happens this weekend from, from the break. Okay. Um, I have a question for you, Paul. Actually, I have two questions for you. First, from Antoine Latron. Don't you think Paul Tenorio looks like Alex Roldan? Yeah, he kind of does. Paul, what do you think? No, I don't. I think Alex Roldan, if anything, looks a little <laughs> bit like me because I'm significantly older than Alex Roldan, first of all. And, you know, second of all, I don't have a second of all. My first of all is that I come, I go, I'm the oldest. I get, I get the veteran uh, priority. Age here. before beauty That's is right. what you're saying. Well, in this age case, age and beauty. Well, you, you know? look alike, so you know you can't really hate on it too much, right? 
Um, and then second question, another kind of fun one. Who? This is from our our buddy Felipe Cardenas. Who is the Kevin of the athletic soccer staff? Man, that's a tough one to put me on the spot about. Um, I feel like I feel like the Kevin of our staff is probably. Well, first of all, there has to be a Zlatan of the staff, and that's definitely you. You're definitely Zlatan. So the question is, who are you most wow. likely to call Kevin on the staff? <laughs> and I think it's it's probably Jeff Ruder because he's the youngest. I don't think so. And and I think you might give him the hardest time. I don't know. All right. I don't know. You I, just I assassinated my character completely. <laughs> okay. Who is the most likely to go in front of his colleagues and say, I am God? It is. is well, I guess it could be Pablo. I wouldn't do that. I mean, I might be most likely, but I would not do that. Okay? Like, just to be clear. It's between you and Pablo. It's between you and Pablo. As like most like the jump between most likely and actually doing it, there are many, many off ramps on that highway. I'm not arguing that you are Zlatan. I think we all know that you're not Zlatan. But you're the most likely to to, to do a Zlatan esque (laughs) I don't know. I like to think it's more positive reinforcement disorder. for me. Although the delivery might be a little out there sometimes. Many people don't know this about me. I, I, I can get like pretty intense about things. Um, sort of famous on the team for that sort of stuff. So, yeah. I don't know. I think last year I think I gave like a motivational speech via WhatsApp one time. Got a little unhinged, and know. then left. So and yeah. then left the WhatsApp group. So it just goes to show the emotional yeah, that roller kind of, coaster. That is kind of prima donna like behavior. <laughs> Can't really argue when you put it like that. Um, okay, I, yeah, man. I don't, who's I don't your know. Who's your Kevin? Who is your Kevin? I, think I, I don't know. I don't know, man. Maybe like if I'm Zlatan, the one I'm most likely to have a go at is you. If we're being honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe it's Felipe because maybe we'll just call him Philip from now on, just like many people have done his entire <laughs> life. You're now Phil. Felipe Carr. <laughs> Phil Carr. That's Phil his Carr. new name. Phil Carr. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. All right. I think it's your turn to ask me a question. All right, Sam. This one's from Sean Hardgrove. How excited are you for Clint Dempsey, studio analyst? I'm excited because I have no idea what's coming, like at all. Like most times when you see a player, it's like they go into an analyst role. You kind of have a vague idea of how they're going to be, you know? Like I have no idea what Clint Dempsey's going to do. He could be terrible. He could be amazing. It probably will be something in between. But, you know, if he if he goes out there and he, and they the studio host tosses to him and it's like, Clint, what were your thoughts on the match? And he just goes, you know, I thought it was a good game, pimp. And, like, that's it? That would be amazing. Like, give him an Emmy right now if he does that. Like, that would be fantastic. I'm interested to see what he does. And, like, it's a studio show. They're inherently uninteresting. So I think it's a major win just to have him on. <laughs> Even if the interest is momentary, it is there. What about you? Are you my, excited? Oh, I'm super you excited, pumped. Pimp? I'm, I'm super pumped. <laughs> I, I think my big fear is that he'll be boring, which would be so disappointing because... The players that we've seen come on, the former U.S. soccer players, not all of them, but some of them have been kind of boring and bland. And it's like, okay, like, you know, we want personality. And you can see, like, the difference if you bring some personality, we see more of you, right? Stu Holden, uh, Moa Du, you know, we we start to see more. So I, I think, like, I think that 
I think that Dempsey is going to be great. I hope he keeps it real. Our our colleague um, Chris Camrani is doing a story. It might it will definitely already be published by the time you guys are listening to this on Friday. But I think one of the benefits right off the jump of um, of this edition is that they got an interview with Christian Pulisic. It was uh, Clint Dempsey, Gucho Nyewu, and um, I think one other one other person on this broadcast um, are you know and and that Christian Pulisic apparently was more open. And, and kind of um, vulnerable or, or willing to share than he has been in pretty much any other wow. interview. And I think part of that is, one, you can't turn down an interview with Clint Dempsey. You, you, you can't do that. So you're going to get I anyone. Mean, you can. At your own risk, my friend. He just won't and, call you a pimp anymore. And and second of all, like, yeah, I think it helps to have somebody who's done what he's done um, be be a part of the group. So... I think it'll be a good thing overall. I'm excited for it. I'm just excited for the reemergence of Clint Dempsey in general. Um, you know, he went on to the podcast. With, I don't, with I don't know that and, I am. Yewu. I want, I, I, I'm excited selfishly because I would like to book a flight to North Carolina and go, you know, hunting and fishing and golfing with you know, Clint Dempsey. You know what, Paul? I'm in North Carolina right now. Like right now. I'm in Western North Carolina. You know where Clint Dempsey lives? Western North Carolina. Maybe I should go find him. Maybe you should. I think you he's probably going to be I'm going to tell my brother. I'm hanging out with my brother. We're going to go we're going to go find him right after the show. It's going to be a a Viking quest for Clint Dempsey. That's going to be exciting. Um a couple of these questions I believe we have already addressed in earlier portions of the show. Uh this one comes from MFT. Not NFT, but MFT. MLS has fewer domestic player minutes in it than all of the big 5 European leagues except for the English Premier League, could you discuss how the economic model disincentivizes domestic development in MLS? It's a bit of a leading question because I think there are some ways that it incentivizes it as well. But Paul, take that one away. Yeah, well, I think it certainly incentivizes it now. It didn't always, right? The whole point of what the league is doing right now is to try to incentivize MLS teams to put more money into youth development and to put more of those young players onto the field and then to sell them. So it's not surprising to me that that the domestic minutes are down in MLS. It's very simply a part of where MLS is now and where the sport is now in this country, which is and has always been significantly behind all of the big five leagues. And that matters. Why? Because as they've tried to grow a little bit more rapidly on a little bit more of a rapid timeline than those other leagues, just out of necessity, in order to increase the quality of the product on the field, they had to put more money into it. And where was that money going to go to quickly enhance the product? It was going to go abroad. And we saw that with targeted allocation money. And we're going to see that with young money as well. Though I think I'm, I don't, I'm not 100% sure that it, it definitely won't be at the same rate, I don't think, as TAM. I think we'll see more domestic players given young money status than we are expecting or we, that I was expecting when, when this rule first got introduced. But I do think that, um, you know, that's the reason why the domestic minutes are lower. Um, one, the player pool couldn't sustain the rate of expansion growth. Two, MLS needed to quickly flood the league with quality players in order to enhance the quality on the field. And that brought players from abroad. And three, the academy system in this country is only 14 years old. 14 years old. That's it. I mean, in the lifespan of, of youth development and creating, you know, first team players, we are 
so, so early in the process. And we're really just starting to see those players that spent an entire developmental phase from 9 through 14, 15, 16 getting pumped out of those academies and being put onto teams not just in in Major League Soccer but in Europe as well. So I I think those numbers are going to continue to climb. Um, I I think, you know, certainly this league is going to be, I think, more dependent on foreign talent in the meantime than than, than the Portuguese league or, you know, than going up to to Spain or to France where especially France, like how – we don't really need to go outside of the country because you have so much talent at your disposal. That's not the case here. Um, so it's not super surprising. And I don't think it's about the economic model as much as it's about where the talent pool is and the amount of time it's going to take to increase the domestic talent pool. Yeah. I would say the way that, no, no, not really at all. I would say one thing that I would add on the other side of the argument is the way that MLS is structured with DPs and TAM and all of those things. I would say maybe that the buckets Maybe that pushes a little bit more international than if it was like a flat cap, but maybe not. I could be off about that, right? So I'd be curious to kind of explore that more in my own head, maybe on this podcast, maybe in an article. I don't know. Those are things that probably won't happen, but it's something that's worth thinking about a little bit more. Um, so yeah, but I, I pretty much agree with, with what you just said there. Um, who, who's, whose turn is it, Paul? Who's up to uh, ask It's my turn question. to ask you a question. So Brandon Klein asked a question that we answered at the beginning of the show when we were talking about some. Mike Miller had a question that was similar about RSL ownership. But he asked a question. I think it's an important one. Does the completion of the Orlando and Houston deals make it more likely that an RSL deal is going to go through soon? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's not like any like huge, like crazy theory. It's just there's only one team left on the market now. So that increases demand. Right. And I guess there's two technically if you include Sacramento and whatever might happen with that expansion spot. But yeah, I think I think it does kind of grease the wheels a little bit. You know, it's there's more of a market price that has been set now for these teams. Um, And I think with a distressed asset, which I think is what you can maybe call RSL at this point in time, MLS probably wanted to have that market set itself in Orlando and Houston before selling at Salt Lake. So it doesn't have to sell for pennies on the dollar. Right. And it can kind of goose that valuation a little bit higher. Whereas if it was like, okay, the Hansen is out because of his racist behavior and maybe this team's available at discount, I think there's less of a chance of the league having to, to go through that discussion. Now, I don't think they ever would have sold it like that, but I think they can like just skip that part at this point and really only get interested buyers who, who are going to play full market value for that team. So yeah, I think it helps. What about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, for all the reasons you just said, I do think it's important that they've been able to see now two transactions happen quite quickly back to back on very different types of transactions in terms of what kind of real estate was involved. But, you know, the Houston transaction certainly helps the valuation of the soccer club itself. The Orlando transaction gives some idea of a transaction with a stadium involved in uh, multiple entities. Um, you know, so I, I do think that um, it'll it'll help that RSL sale move along. And we we know that they have a favorite in that. Um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of, of who it is that's in the lead now. Um, but um, Guy with the know, Devils I think, I think the Sixers ownership group. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, I think that process is, is now starting to, to move along. All right. I think we have one last question here. Um, and there was another one that I think we'll touch on later in the week in the story. So we're going to hold off on asking it right now. But one last one, NYCFC specific. The club bought... 
This is from my name, Leroy, which is definitely the best username we got out of all of these questions. Thanks, Leroy. NYCFC bought Tiago, Talis Magno, and possibly Santiago Rodriguez this window and still have one designated player spot open. First, should this redeem David Lee in the eyes of supporters? I don't know why he needed redeeming. Second, what position and character of player do you think NYCFC needs? Presumably, I think he means with that open DP spot. Yeah, well, Sam, you and I talked about this before the show. I, I think they're probably going to be looking for a, another midfield player. Um, you know, maybe somebody who can step into the central midfield kind of deeper in midfield and be more of a, a dominant presence there. I, I think they have Keaton Parks there. They have some options in central midfield, but I don't think they have like a really dominant personality if we're talking about character of player, somebody who can kind of impose themselves on the game in one way or another. You know, maybe that's a guy who, um, is more of a, a, a deep lying playmaker, more likely in my mind. It's somebody who's kind of more of a destroyer who can influence a game with how much ground they cover and the types of tackles they get into. You know, the way Diego Chara has for Portland Timbers, um, you know, the way Ozzy Alonso did for Seattle Sounders. I could see that type of signing being prioritized for NYCFC. What about <laughs> you? Yeah, I don't know if they're going to go for like a pure six like that because they, they just signed Alfredo Morales. They have James Sands, who I think they project as a midfielder. Um, he's played center back as well, obviously, for them. I think maybe a number eight. You know, you mentioned Keaton Parks. He's done, I think, well for them, but I think they, that they probably could upgrade there. Santiago Rodriguez, he kind of looks like he might be... I don't know if they see him as more of a winger or as more of a 10. He's played both in Uruguay, so... I kind of get the feeling maybe he could be the replacement for Maxi Morales, who is getting older and, you know, dealing with injuries pretty significantly. Um, I also don't, you know, I don't know exactly what the situation is with their contracts up top. I don't know how long Eber is is under contract for. Tati Castellanos obviously just signed a new deal, but, you know, he's made no secret that he wants to be eventually move to, to Europe or maybe Brazil and go to a different club. Um, so I think he's one that they think they can sell. He's at a good age. So, you know, if you're going to, if, if Eber's out of contract or if, if Castellanos is, is maybe looking at a move, then maybe you go and sign another number nine. Um, so I don't know. I think NYCFC has a lot of good pieces on their roster. Um, I think they're a strong team and I'm curious. I'm very curious to see what these new guys do. And we haven't really seen any of them yet. But I'm very curious to see what they do. They're very young in most cases. So we'll see if they have the instant impact that some of the older DPs have. Um, but Talis Magno in particular, big talent. So we'll see how he we'll see how he performs in MLS. And with that, we have our show. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for the questions. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed our answers somewhat. Um, it's been fun. I'm off to look for, for Clint Dempsey. And I think Paul is off to stuff his face with dairy products in Wisconsin. So... Um, we'll be back next week. Um, thank you for listening. This has been Allocation Disorder. <laughs>